Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Terry. And this week, I'm super pumped to have Daniel Renzing from The Smart Baker on the show. And they're an e-commerce business that sells baking equipment, which was featured on the Shark Tank Season 3 in Episode 7. And so I reached out to him uh, after seeing him on a blog, and I wanted to follow up to see where his business is at and kind of what their experience was on uh, in the Shark Tank. And so before we start, I highly encourage everyone to press pause and take 10 minutes to watch their appearance on the show. I posted it via a YouTube video on the blog at buildmyonlinestore.com. And so you should check it out just to get an idea of how their business works. And so in our interview, I asked him about what's it like to get on the show, prep work they do before, talking to the sharks, uh, pitching a business, and much more. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. All right, and so before we get into this week's show, we have a five-star review by Tim Conley at The Foolish Adventure Show. Tim says, I've been blown away at how a newbie podcaster could come right out of the gate with such a professional show. I'm jealous of Terry's interview skills. And on top of that, Terry has taken e-commerce out of the overhyped internet marketer world to showcase real businesses doing the hard work to succeed online. If you're an e-commerce or planning your own store, you owe it to yourself to listen to this show. Wow, Tim, thanks so much. Um, you know, as someone that I really look up to, uh, these words means a lot to me. And so just to give everyone a background about Tim, uh, if you're not really into podcasts, uh, Tim is one of those mentors you meet where you learn so much from him and it makes you wish you found him years ago. Things like listening to his show, he has so much experience and knowledge that when you listen to his show, you can feel yourself getting smarter uh, every minute. And it's kind of hard to describe, so the best thing I can say is just go check out foolishadventure.com. Absolutely brilliant show. Uh, can't say enough good things about it. If it's your first time, you should check out episode 115 with Andrew Warner of Mixergy, who you may have heard of. That episode really blew my mind away and because of the honesty and a lot of the things they discuss uh, really hit home for me and especially the last 15 minutes uh, I listened to that segment multiple times this past week so uh, with that being said let's just get into today's show all right today I have Daniel Renzing from the smart baker on the show what's going on Daniel good how are you today hey not bad I found you guys on the Big Commerce blog. I think you guys were on there. I think, gosh, probably like a couple of months ago, right? And I was like, oh wow, this would be a cool story. Yeah, we had a little bit of a feature on there. Yeah. So, uh, so let's just kind of get started then. How did you guys get into Smart Baker, and what's the story behind it? You know, it, it kind of started by accident, but it was a happy accident. My wife's a big baker, and I have a graphic design background, and you know, she's always scaling recipes down and things like that. So she would always get frustrated because it was always just like weird measurements and, you know, scaling down by a third or things like that, you know, were getting kind of complicated. So, uh, I decided to make an apron for her that had the information she needed, kind of just printed on the bottom, printed upside down so that when she's wearing it, she can read it and it's right there. The mess that she makes in the kitchen and apron was kind of the, the best spot to put it for her. And then uh, we, we put it online in an online marketplace and literally like two weeks later, we get a call from Food Network Magazine wanting to do a feature. And that really is what catapulted us to kind of take 
that little item I made for her and kind of take it to a little bit of a, like almost a one product business at that time. And, you know, it's, it's gone up from there. Did you always have an intent to kind of sell this or was it just kind of just for fun? And then at first it was for fun. You know, Stephanie was like, you know, if I want this, um, maybe other people want it. So we, we threw it up online on Etsy. Uh, we started selling them. So I was like, wow, that's, you know, kind of cool. It was, you know, a few here and there. It, it was really nothing. You know, it was just a fun little thing to, you know, I made a few and sold them. So we didn't really have like an actual intention when I first created the product. It kind of morphed itself into a business as it picked up some steam online. And then you can't ask for any better advertising than Food Network Magazine for, for this, especially during, it was uh, printed in their holiday edition. So it was, you know, it's a great gift item and it's took a life on its own. And, you know, it's, it's funny because as a guy who kind of cooks, yeah, like milliliters, ounces, like all that stuff is just like, I don't even know what to do with it. I just kind of... <laughs> Forget about it. I, I stay out of the kitchen. Yeah, like I just guesstimate. <laughs> oh, it looks right. If it, doesn't, if it tastes fine. Yeah. Exactly. Baking is a little, you know, too much of a science. So, um, you know, need to make sure it's precise. Yeah. All right. And so once you guys were on Food Network, what happened after that? Did sales just blow up or? Um, it wasn't. I just want to make sure it wasn't on the show. It was actually in their printed magazine. So. Oh, okay. We got, I got a call from the editor saying, hey, we saw your product online. We'd love to feature it in our November, December issue. And I was like, okay, great. When that happened, I realized that, you know, Etsy wasn't going to cut it because I can't tell everybody to give them a print this big, long link to get to Etsy. So we had to first come up with the name for the product, which we call the cheat sheet apron. We also said, okay, we got to get a website for, you know, direct these people to. At the time we were like, okay, we'll just do like cheat sheet apron.com or, or something per- pertaining to that product. But we kind of stepped back and said, you know, this might be an opportunity to turn this into something, you know, a little bit bigger than just like this one little feature. But I don't know, brainstorming came up with a smart baker, got the website, looked into getting, you know, some inventory of these aprons made. So we had them ready to ship if we were going to be, you know, printed in the magazine and then finding out, you know, the readership of the magazine, you know, the millions upon millions that, you know, subscribe to that. There wasn't enough inventory in the States for anybody to apply these aprons. Plus we wanted some special colors and things like that. So I kind of turned into trying to source it, kind of took this magazine opportunity free advertising as a way to capitalize on it as best as you can and you know make it as much of a professional product as opposed to me making them you know in the garage for my wife so it was a little bit of a process but it you know it turned out okay and so what was selling the product on etsy like before you moved to uh it was minimal (laughs) maybe one every week or so once we started selling them and started getting some feedback on the product and things like that it was great And then the few blogs, you know, uh, friends of friends who, you know, wrote for blogs, you know, we sent them the link and then they linked to it as a favor. So a little bit of that social media blog world helped bring a little bit of exposure to the Etsy site. And then with the magazine, it brought, you know, kind of redirected everybody to our main site. I see. And so Etsy is a platform where a lot of people start out first and then they graduate onto like a full-fledged platform, right? Does that? Yeah, it's, it's an eBay of homemade. Put up a listing for very minimal cost. You know, it only costs you more when you sell a product. So, 
you know, you don't need to invest in the website and, and all that time and energy and things like that. So they do their own advertising. So you get to feed off of that a little bit. And if you have a product you want, people will find it on there. All right, very cool. And before we get into some more topics, so if I'm going to make uh, cupcakes for uh, you know, any listeners, I want to make it for the girlfriends or wives. What are like the 80 20s we need to know? Um, I'm, it's, I don't know. <laughs> all right so you don't do any of the baking then <laughs> um that that's stephanie's domain i, I you know stay out of, i stay out of that i just like to eat them um just, all right fair enough it's box mix make it make it from scratch <laughs> yeah but i guess the measurements we should definitely follow those closely yes, yes please do all right so you guys were also on shark tank so for yeah. those listeners that are not in the u.s how does the show work show uh was most recently compared to like the venture capitalist American Idol, if that makes sense. You get the opportunity to pitch your idea, your product, your business to a panel of five super wealthy potential investors. You have to, you know, do a little quick pitch, get them intrigued, get them hooked into you, you know, your product, and you ask them for X amount of dollars for X percentage of your business. So for us, we went out there, we said we were looking for $75,000 of funding and in exchange, we're going to give you 25% of our company. You know, based on that and any questions that they, they you know, you go back and forth with a little Q&A and hopefully you either get somebody from that panel to offer you that money, offer you more and kind of do a little on-air negotiation. And then from there, you hopefully actually secure that funding and and help build your brand and your business. Did you get to meet the investors beforehand or is it just all live on the show? Not get any of the sharks. They keep you away from them. They have very minimal knowledge of who you are, what your product is until you're about to go out there and do your pitch in front of them. So that helps keep the real reality dynamic between you know the investors and and the participants for during the show oh so they basically decide within five minutes in a quick couple of questions yeah and what was your experience on the show for those who haven't seen the episode because i saw it but i don't want to spoil it i'll let you talk about it <laughs> i had a great time stephanie was 100 percent set on us not even or me applying for the show but uh, i took the chance and you know made it through obviously you know we did our taping um it's very nerve-wracking because you have to know absolutely everything and no pun intended if the sharks smell blood and you know they're going to pounce on you and kind of make you look like a fool so there's a lot of anxiety and stress to make sure that you can answer every question that they may ever ask you on a moment's notice and have the right answer for it so it's a little scary that way but you know as long as you're we actually know what you're talking about. And I was confident I was, you know, I was relaxed. You know, there's a little adrenaline at first, but once you get into it, it's a conversation on, on your business, which we're passionate about. Yeah, I noticed on your episode when you were asked numbers, you just spat them out right away and you knew the exact margins, stuff like that. So I wear every hat of the business. So, you know, I have to know that. Some of these other episodes you see, they don't really have sure answers, not really sure their market. And if you can't, be confident in your own business answering the questions. Why are they going to invest in you? You know, it's it, it's too risky for them. So it, you really got to make sure you know your stuff. Yeah. And if you don't even know where your business is at, exactly. who, who's going to give you money to take it even further? It's, uh, so what happened after the show? After the show, you know, there's a due diligence process that happens with whomever you may 
accept a deal with. For our case, we accepted a deal on air with Barbara. Like any of the business transactions that happen when, you know, money and percentages of business are involved, you know, they got to make sure it's it's right for them, right for us. Our business was growing quite quickly before, during, and even after the taping of the episode. And with the deal that we accepted with Barbara, it actually ended up turning out not to be the best business decision for us. And what we needed to get from Barbara was actually a little bit either more money, more time from her, more effort from her. So we didn't actually end up closing a deal with Barbara. You know, we still communicate every so often if I have any questions, you know, she's a great mentor to have. You know, it's unfortunate not to get the funding because, you know, it's it's the dream to have this big name behind you and your product, but uh, it has to make business sense. And in our case, it didn't. So the good thing is we still have 100% control. We've been able to grow the business without the funding. Uh, without our help so it's just it's a little more self-satisfying because we've we've been doing it by ourselves nice awesome so the, all the on-air stuff is just on air and there's actually a whole other process that happens after business section of it and there's the entertainment section of it um you know what's on air is what's happening obviously there's editing involved our pitch that we did in our Q&A was actually over an hour and 40 minutes and it gets cut down to about, depending on the episode, you know, eight to 10 minutes or so. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's not aired, a lot of boring stuff. You know, they make good TV because they're a television show, but, you know, when the cameras are off and you get down to the numbers and sense of things, it's, you know, it's a business transaction at that point on. Really? Because on the show, I remember they only asked you your revenues, your bestseller. Yeah. I think your margins. Yeah. And I think that was it. And then they started arguing about, I think Barbara and Damon were arguing back and forth, like who was going to yep, take it, right? There's a lot of that, you know, and that, that does happen. That's happening in real time but they cut out some of the other boring things they want to know about production and you personally on a personal level you know the relationship it was touched on a little bit that i had with my wife being together for 10 years married for at that time like eight months you know there's there's a lot of boring business stuff that happens because they are investing their money so they're going to ask you questions you know and the longer the the conversation goes on the better because it shows that they're more interested but they they're going to ask you those boring things that the general public probably wouldn't care about it doesn't make for good tv so you know they they cut that section out all right so they keep it with the entertainment correct as much as possible i see okay. and did you get to meet other guests on the show or entrepreneurs a little bit everything is filmed in in sections so you know not everybody's out there at once but um you get to see the same people a little bit over again i mean you're all in the same hotel for the most part everybody's kind of on a different schedule but there is a little uh communication that happens between it you know not about the show or anything about you know how their things are going but just on a personal level uh, we've been able to stay friends with a group of guys that were on the episode after us nardo's natural Nardo brothers they're in florida as well so they're, they're just across the coast from a or the state from us on the other coast and um you know it's just a great thing to be able to you know have that relationship with people who are in the same position as you you know get the bounce ideas off and you know going out there not only for the the television thing it's been great to be able to make these connections with like-minded individuals that you know are going through the same process I see. and so for anyone that wants to apply to shark tank how does the process work well right now they're actually the new season starts soon the, the process is a little simple since the show is now an emmy nominated show and has you know been killing it in their ratings um they've been doing more open casting calls i literally just sent an email out to uh a generic casting email that they had listed on some website somewhere after Googling it to see if they were doing a new season. For us, we sent an email out. They call back. They say, hey, you know, we we actually love your 
product. We love your story. We're going to send you the formal application. And then uh, from there, it's just a matter of filling out paperwork, doing video like interviews to say and sending it to them and, and going through the process of approval between all the companies involved that are doing that. But, you know, there's cats and calls, there's online applications uh, and things like that that are, you know, kind of easy to start that process. I see. And how long did it take from filming to actually be live on TV? Um, a long time. Um, the whole process from starting application to being on air was probably about eight months. Oh, wow. Yeah, seven, eight months. It's different for everybody because everybody comes in at a little bit of a different point. We filmed during the summer. I believe it was end of July, beginning of August. And then we didn't air until that following March. From filming to airing was, you know, quite a while. But even after filming, you don't know if you're going to be aired or not. So then there's a lot of waiting from July, August. And then I think we found out in maybe December that we were actually going to film. Uh, we were actually going to air. So uh, it's, you know, there's a lot, a lot of anxious waiting involved. <laughs> <laughs> and they fly you, did they fly to like New York or did they film this? Flew to Culver City on their Sony Sony lot, if you make it at a moment's notice. Uh, everything is hurry up and wait. So we had about 18 hours notice from when we were told we were going out there to actually being out there. Decisions are made kind of on the fly a little bit and you got to get your stuff together. And, and get out there and get ready to do your do you do it for real nice all right and, and it's very exciting and so on on the show i remember you said your sales were at like 100k but how has your business grown since then yeah we closed out you know we were anticipating about ending the year at about 140,000. that year we were just short just shy of that by you know a few thousand dollars we were pretty spot on on that from then on, I don't want to give any specific numbers, but we are a lot closer to that million dollars in sales range. Um, you know, a little less than 10 times the the gross sales. Nice. When was the show? Uh, we aired on March 2nd. This was 2012? So this year. Wow, incredible. Yeah. The filming was done in, in 2011. So when we closed out 2011, we we're just shy of 140. We'll be... Uh, you know, a little under that million dollar revenue range in 20. Nice, congrats. And so looking back on it, did you think, wow, I asked for like only 75K on the show? <laughs> and that's the reasons why we didn't end up closing the deal. You know, you got to go in there at a time for where your business is at that moment. We were true with our evaluation and our numbers and we weren't exaggerating how, you know, it, it may happen sometimes with some other businesses and people on there. But, um, you know, you got to make it so it's reasonable so that they don't think you're just BSing them. And, you know, if you are honest with what you give them and your evaluations, then that exudes the honesty, you know, you may have in a partnership with them. So, you know, looking back, that money's not, wasn't going to do much for us actually at the point of, you know, afterwards. So, you know, $75,000 sounds like a lot, but with startup companies, especially for us, you know, since we are the manufacturer of our products, it costs a lot of money to, to set up that network, that warehousing, the order fulfillment and, and things like that. So I look back, and like, wow, 75000 was was not too much, especially at the 40% that we agreed to. So, you know, we I think we made the best decision in, in not you know accepting that just because it, it wouldn't have given us as huge of a lift as we thought it might have. Yeah, and if you look back, 
the 40% would have really gotten you right now, right? Considering where you're at right now. Exactly. You know, uh, as everybody says, everything happens for a reason. So we, we couldn't be happier, you know, where we are right now. It's like, all right, so let's dig into the business a little bit. What are your main product lines? The main ones we have are our line of cupcake and treat towers, which are the adjustable and reusable dessert displays. We also have a similar product for cake pops and lollipops that, you know, holds the sticks upright and a nice large capacity display. We have our awesome line of pre-cut parchment paper for cookie sheets and cake pans. And then um, we have, of course, our line of cheat sheet aprons and a little sub-product of the a barbecue measurement meats and temperature cooking apron that we have for the guys as well. So those would be the main product lines. We do have some other little accessories, magnets. We have some towels and, and, and things like that. But uh, the core is the aprons, the towers, and the parchment paper. I see. And so on the show, I remember you said the cupcake tower was the bestseller. Is that still the case or has it changed? Uh, that is still the case. You know, our aprons are definitely throughout the year it's a great gift but it's most definitely a fourth quarter holiday item for us you know the cupcake towers fill a need in a huge variety of markets from you know the moms doing the birthday parties to brides wedding planners catering halls casinos cruise ships that we've been on trade shows you know so the towers are definitely something that sell very well throughout the entire year and it's you know been a, a great product for us nice so probably most bakeries would be using one of your products now would that be something yeah. right to say or most, uh, we're getting there they are perfect for the small bakeries and large ones either for displays in store but the best thing is is that since they are reusable and adjustable they're they're perfect for rentals and the bakeries have an opportunity to you know upsell a little bit or you know get their small investment back in the in the tower by renting it out you know a few times for for different events and now they got a free display out of it and you know can still continue to use it as a an incentive to you know gain more business yeah, I guess it's a big hit at weddings too, right? Looking at how it could be taken apart and like assembled and created the product for our own wedding. Um, awesome. You know, again, coming from the the craft design and design background, uh, I know how to run the machine to make the product. You know, I made the computer files for it, and and we had one for our own wedding because we're cupcake people. So. Um, you know, we wanted something nice, elegant, appropriate for a wedding. And, you know, the cardboard ones that were out there just weren't large enough and weren't nice enough. So, you know, we took it upon ourselves to make something of our own that we needed. And we did the same thing, put it on Etsy. And I started selling the tower that I made for my own wedding four or five times over. And I was like, geez, I'm going to have to make some more of these. You know, after our wedding, we re-looked at it and, you know, refined it a little bit, tweaked the sizes and things like that and came out the square one. And, you know, the sales went from, you know, one a week to one a day to now we sell hundreds of those a month, you know, through our website. So that, that just blew up just because it fit a need that so many people had. It seems like all your products come from your own daily lives. Uh, you know, they say necessity is a mother of all invention. And for us, it's ex exactly the case. I made the apron because I saw Steph was frustrated. The parchment paper is something that Steph would always just cut them to the shapes that we now sell them in. You know, so I saw what she was doing. I was like, if you're doing this, Everybody else who's bakes is doing this and the role of parchment is no longer applicable with all the different types of pans and, you know, sheet pans and cakes things and all that other nonsense. So I saw that and what she was doing and made a product out of it and same thing with the towers. Nice. And, and so when you're designing a product, what's the process you go through? In terms of like coming from a problem into designing something, you know, like a prototype, uh, into something that you actually sell? Yeah, you know, I don't uh, sound arrogant. It seems <laughs> easy for us just because I have the mindset that we're not afraid to take a risk 
to see something that we were doing in our own home. I don't know. It's hard to say, you know, the prototype is easy for us because, you know, Stephanie was cutting parchment into those shapes. So for us, it was, you know, just kind of taking that and figuring out, okay, how do we apply this to the standard cake pans that are out there? How do we package it in a way that it's one affordable and two worth it? You know, there's value in it. It's really just a matter of a little questioning, you know, your community, your town. Um, What has been great for us is that we went we do local craft shows and trade shows here in our community and you get feedback from the public right then and there. We were able to make some, you know, here in house to say in our own home, be able to try and sell them and get customers feedback from that. And then we make our own tweaks and, you know, we take the risk to go into production with it on, on small levels, see how it does. And if it does well, you know, you just continue that and see how you can expand on it. Sort of the parchment, we had five sizes and now I think we have, God, we'll have almost 12 by the time the end of the year comes. So it was sort of easy for us just because we were able to make them here quick and get people's reactions from it. I see. And so how many SKUs do you guys have now? Yeah, it's a good question. We keep trying to add more. Uh, we're, we're 30, we're a little over 30 uh, different SKUs that we have. I mean, but with the aprons, you have all the different colors and things like that. So, yeah, I think we're at 30 something altogether. I see. And I guess at first, the inventory was all kept kind of in your house, right? When did you move it into like a warehouse? Yeah, I mean, we made a transition from the garage to, you know, a little local storage unit for some small inventory. And then we made the transition into uh, an empty office that was available to us just because it was you know, within the family. And then once we kind of knew what we were doing a little bit and the whole Shark Tank thing, we kind of took the risk to order inventory in advance without knowing if we were actually going to be on air and moved into a 2,500 square foot uh, warehouse and distribution center for us and little office. And we've actually been in those, that facility for a little, uh, just about a year now. You know, it was tough to go from managing it out of your house in garage to a warehouse. You know, it, it gets a little um, annoying, you know, having to make different trips to make sure to fill orders and go to the post office, go to the UPS and drop off packages and, and centralizing it for us was key in order to being efficient in order to, you know, grow into a space that, you know, we could afford at that time. And so did you guys actually just keep stuff there and you had to go do all the packaging, shipping yourself too? Yeah. Yep. Is that still the case now or do you have outside help that you guys have hired to help grow the business? No, I mean, we inventory our own products. We fulfill our own products. You know, manufacturing is not done in-house. You know, we do do some with some custom orders, but, uh, you know, we have small staff that helps with order fulfillment. Um, I do all the administrative parts of it, and um, but everything we keep in-house as much as possible. I see. And so when your inventory is in a warehouse, how do you tie it into your e-commerce platform? We use BigCommerce, obviously. It's been very simple. I mean, in the blog post that I did with BigCommerce, it's 100% honest, you know, without them system. It was disastrous trying to manage everything, orders, inventory, but being able to simply add the product, put in the inventory that you have and have it auto deduct when, you know, you ship an item is great. I don't know. It's just their, their platform just makes, makes it how much, so much easier to to deal with. I mean, and and before we started, you mentioned some products are made in China now. How did you make the shift all the way over there for manufacturing? Um, you know, we get a little bit of grief from some people, uh, that, you know, we can't make everything in the USA. Um, you know, and it saddens us a little bit, but, um, you know, without that global uh, economy that, you know, we have, we honestly wouldn't be able to create and make these products here 
in the United States, you know, there's just the costs, unfortunately, have been high. But, you know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and business owners and things like that. Uh, I've been lucky enough that I knew the production process because I was making them for the towers, that it was easy for us to translate what we needed to these outsourcing companies. You know, you go through the sample process, but literally, you know, you, you kind of find them online, you, you interview them a little bit via Skype. It, it's very risky. It doesn't always happen the best way, you know, the ideal way you think it will. But um, if you can do your homework on the company you're dealing with and start off small and build that relationship, uh, it, it becomes a powerful resource to have to be able to manufacture what you need and when you need it. Yeah. And did you get to meet your manufacturer in China? Did you make a trip over there or did you, are you guys doing it online? We almost did last year. You know, technology and the internet's great. You got email, you got Skype, you know, video conferencing and things like that. So it really helps obviously keeps costs down because it gets quite expensive to fly over there. But um, I hope to one day uh, just because of the, the relationship that we, we've created. But uh, as of right now, I mean, it's all uh, online based. Yeah, I see. And I know cash is huge in China. And I think most factories require cash up front, right? Were you comfortable with that at first? You know, we weren't. Uh, when we first did the aprons, the entire order was $7,500. And that was our personal money. You know, it, that was money we had sitting in the bank for savings and things like that. And took the risk. I mean, you have to give at that time, since we were the first time ordering, you know, a 50% deposit. And you hope, I mean, this is after the sample process and things like that, but you hope that after you give them your money that you're going to get product. And then even after they make the product, they give you some sort of evidence that it is made and, you know, it's ready to ship. You have to, at that time, we still had to pay them in full before they would even ship it. So it is very, very scary to send that money over to them without knowing. But now that I've been dealing with the same manufacturers for uh, about two years now, it's like dealing with any other business, you know, anywhere. Uh, for us, we give a small deposit and we have terms set up with the companies that, you know, we don't pay them in full or, you know, whatever they ship until it's actually here and inspected and, and meets our standards. And so as you stick with one person, you build that trust level that, yeah, I'm going to send you the money when I say I am. And yes, I'm going to send you the product when I say I am. And it's, it's really beneficial to, to have that relationship. Yeah, that seems like a huge hurdle at first for anyone manufacturing China, because I think in the U.S. it's all like net 30 days, 90 days, 120 days, right? So sometimes, you know, you set up terms in original you know, 30 days, but it takes 30 days for the transportation of the goods to get here. So technically you're still paying them and the products aren't here, but you're getting clarification that, yeah, it's on a shipping container and it is shipped and, and things like that. So it's a little, puts your mind at ease a little bit to know that it's actually on its way here. But like I said, as long as you have that relationship and you stick with somebody to build that rapport with, it, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, and do you find that manufacturers in China are actually quite professional once you get past that hurdle or kind of what's your general image? It's tough to try and discern who's going to be good, who's going to be not good. You know, I got, I don't want to say burnt by one company that I, I, I strayed away from my original manufacturer just because he's, I overloaded him with work. So um, when we did some of these other aprons, I left him out of it and went with somebody else for the first time. And that was the wrong decision. I mean, I ended up getting product I was not happy with. And, you know, it, it was upsetting, but um, it just shows that, you should, you know, there is that opportunity for you to get burnt. And, you know, it's yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah there's uh, i don't know if you listened to episode three yet but there's a guy michael who actually does sourcing in china for like the past 
eight years. And, and what he told me was that if you're making like aprons or like, you know, certain jeans, because they're all made in the same cities, right? They're in clusters. So any anytime someone tries to cut someone out, like they'll know really quick because they're all in the same neighborhood. So yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that's happened with you. It sounded like it was, but I'm not sure. It's, it's Yes. <laughs> With our parchment paper, when I tried to source the parchment paper myself before I had this, you know, relationship with the manufacturer I use now, you know, I contacted the the, the people who made the parchment paper, and then, you know, I said, well, you know, what, let me just let me talk to the one guy I've been using and see if he can get it. He ended up contacting the same company that I contacted personally, but he ended up getting a better pricing than I did. It just shows that it's even though that it's middlemen involved. I guess, you know, it makes it easier for a Chinese manufacturer to deal with a Chinese manufacturer as opposed to the hurdles and time involved for dealing with a U.S. company. And you know what I mean? Like there's less communication issues because they can, you know, they're next to each other and near each other. They can quickly send samples back and forth and things like that. And, you know, so I almost have a you know, representative of the smart baker business that's watching my back because, you know, he he's invested his time and energy and and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny. It like you said, it, it is in clusters, and people do know, you know, what's going on within that same. Right. Very cool. And so, let's move on to a little bit about sales and marketing. So, how do you guys mainly market your products now? Since you know, the majority of our money is online advertising. Since our our core business model is the e-commerce store. So, you know, we're definitely doing the Google AdWords, the SEO work blogs, sponsorships, little ads, you know, free products for blog reviews and things like that. Since the show, we've made a little bit more of a transition into doing a little more print advertising, magazine features and things like that. And now we're trying to get into these large cooking events like coming up as a New York Food and Wine Festival. We recently had an LA Food and Wine Festival and trying to do either chef sponsorships or getting our products being used for displays uh, and just more of a product placement sort of thing. So we're transitioning. We're not going away from where we're just supplementing our online presence with a in-your-face branding through directly to the consumers. And which channel has worked the best for you so far? Uh, Google AdWords. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That, you know, the, the online, the search engine marketing has definitely been, you know, the best. And like I said, since that's our core business and where we get the majority of our customers from, it's it's something that we invest heavily in. There's a lot of talk in the SEO world where they're saying Google's, I mean, if you're going to give money to do online advertising, you might as well do AdWords because SEO can change, you know, anytime Google changes their algorithm too, so manage everything myself, my SEO, my Google AdWords, my Microsoft Ad Center and things like that. It got to the point where all my time was going to that. So, you know, we sourced out to, you know, some companies in the United States that all they do is handle uh, paperwork stuff and the SEO stuff just because it, it's it's a headache. It really is. And unless you are really into that sort of business, it's not something that it's something that can totally waste your time. If yeah, and especially if you're doing it in-house, you have to keep up with the trends of different tactics, all the ways to do this, do that. It's just not your core business, too. So, all right, and so uh, offline, uh, what's your strategy when you do offline marketing? Because this is something I think a lot of business owners kind of, I guess they get stuck online with online marketing, but they don't see the other channels. So, what are some ways that have worked well for you guys? The, the magazines, or at least for us, you know, the ones that are either food related or or. Part related ones is a new avenue that we are getting into. Uh, we saw the effect that Food Network Magazine had with us when we were in the holiday issue. The amount of revenue that generated for us was great. 
So we kind of took that and carefully selected smaller national magazines that we could afford to get in because it gets super expensive in print. Yeah, even though it, you know everybody say it's a dying media, you know there's still a lot of people that get magazines in their mailbox. But uh, you know, been trying that. I recently hired a, a a little bit of a PR team to help us get into as many different outlets as possible, um, whether it be, you know, recently we had our products presented to Duff Goldman from, he used to have a show Ace of Cakes here in the States, and he's big, he's those, I don't even know, those types of cakes that are just, you don't even look like a cake, you know, it's a <laughs> um, Yeah, I'll, I'll Google it, I have no idea. <laughs> so getting our products in the hands of, you know, celebrities is one avenue we're trying. Um, like I said, these food and wine festivals we're trying to get a part of. Any um, charity events that we can you know, either donate products to or, or help with, we're, we're trying to do. Kind of not thinking outside the box, but taking our online world and, like you said, bringing it to the streets and to the public who may not you know, do a lot of shopping online. You know, we're not getting into retail just really yet but um we're just trying the different avenues to connect with the public with the with our target audience i see and, and i guess a lot of the marketing channels depend on your target customer right so who's your typical customer that buys from you you know and that's that's tough for us and that's why we're, we're put in a position where we got to kind of make some hard decisions our products have a very wider each of our products have a little bit different of a, a market you know with our aprons it's a great gift item so Kind of anybody who's looking for a personalized gift for somebody who's, you know, just starting out baking or maybe bought a new home and, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, just a small little gift is great. And then with our cupcake towers, like I said, you have anywhere from brides and catering halls to the end user who's using it for their kid's first birthday party to corporate clients like American Express who uses them for all their trade show booths. I uh, got casinos, Royal Caribbean, who uses them on display. So, you know, it's really from large corporations to somebody throwing a, a baby shower. Um, so it's really tough to try and market to all those people in an affordable way. Yeah, and it's tough. And with the uh, parchment paper, there seems to be a little bit of a generation gap for the market who used to use it. You know, nowadays it's used a lot because it's actually like written into recipes, whereas 20 years ago it was less used. So we're either trying to inform customers about it and gain new ones and also market it to the people who are already familiar with it and tell them why they should choose ours as opposed to anyone else's. So it sounds like a simple question, but it's such a hard thing to nail down, especially with a, a, a broad audience like we, we have. Yeah. And especially how you need to do different marketing, do so much work with each channel too. It's so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so I saw on your Facebook page, you guys have a shopping cart plugin. I'm just curious, how has that worked out? Yeah, that's something that's provided by Big Commerce. They have their social shop, I think it's called. Um, and it's just something that's integrated into their, you know, backend system and their platform. And, you know, it helps anybody that gets to our Facebook page, you know, who may not know products and stuff can see what we have there right within Facebook and either direct them to our site or they can actually go through the whole process on their Facebook page. So I don't think that the say quote world is familiar and ready with that because you know Facebook is a social media thing as opposed to a shopping site, you know, with people who are keen to observe that little uh you know side link is it's it definitely helps yeah because i i guess most people would look for the products on the facebook page and they go to your website to buy is that the case you're seeing that's 
usually what happens, you know, we don't see huge percentages of sales coming from there, but you know, if it doesn't cost us anything, we're paying for it with our service with big commerce. So, you know, why not utilize it? Exactly. Might as well too. So yeah. And that's the big thing that I hear a lot too, is that Facebook, because you go there to see what your friends are doing. You're not really looking to buy anything. So it's very difficult to get conversions. But I heard some businesses do really well. So I guess it depends on... For us, you know, I don't know how to say pay too much attention about it, but it feeds off of our, off of our you know, main site. So, you know, we don't uh, focus too much on it. All right. And, and so moving forward, uh, what are some of the big challenges you're facing in your business right now? Um, cash flow. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something I hear with all bootstrap businesses. We're really into some core growing pains right now. We have increasing demand for the product, especially from some wholesale accounts who, you know, will issue purchase orders, but you don't get paid until you ship product. So you have to be able to create that product and send it to them and wait for them to pay in order for you to recoup your costs that you're putting out. So, you know, luckily we're in a position where we're able to handle that right now. Besides cash flow, it's it's really how do you continue to get your products out into the public and is, you know, retail the right way to go? You know, for us, we are working with some retail stuff with the aprons, which should hopefully be happening soon. You know, what, what can you do to, to either continue to sell the product you're selling and or how do you continue to create new products that people want without thinking too much about the product for us we have to make sure it's a problem solving product because that's what you know the smart baker is all about is create products that help you be a better baker or you know make you a better baker so we don't want to force products so trying to organically create new products is is tough without a team and a feedback you know from our customers to tell us what they're looking for what they need or what they want you know is very important so you know i would say you know Product development is, is tough and is key and customer service is obviously, you know, extremely important, but, and then, you know, cash flow and making sure you have product when people need it. And it, it, that's a tough and risky decision that as a business owner, you have to make. Yeah. And you don't want to get crushed by the cash flow cycle with being, uh, you know, in production while you ship it to the distributor and all that. It's, you know, uh, but it's, as long as you're passionate about it, it it's okay. And going back to your point, um, product creation. I mean, it sounds like a lot of your products came from inspiration, but at a moment in time where it just kind of clicked, right? But if you try to overthink it, it may not be something that'll work as well as something that was already there. This is, you know, we try to create the, why didn't we think of that product where it's such a common, you know, a product that can be so commonly used or it was just like, oh my God, I, we want to create the product that people don't want is that people need. You know, it, like I said, it is tough to organically come up with those without overthinking it. We like to look at things that we can improve on and how can we improve on it and how can we actually really do it so that it's a good improvement and not just something that we want. So, yeah, I mean, it, it product development is, is tough. And so uh, since you were on Shark Tank, I mean, for anyone that's looking for to bootstrap or for investors, uh, what, do you, what advice do you have to give to them? Uh, no, like I said before, you got to know your stuff. You got to know your market. You got to know your products. You got to know your business, and you got to know what you you know where you want to go with it. You know, if you go in there with a uh, you know napkin drawing, it's it's not really going to get you anywhere. You got to be confident. You you can't be as you know scared to put yourself in uncomfortable positions. You know, I did that with, with Stephanie. She didn't want to have anything to do with Shark Tank, but we both realized that this is something that we needed to do for our business and for ourselves. So it's, it's really all about researching yourself, 
looking at it's a little cheesy, but who you are as a person and how you can, you know, grow yourself as a person and and not be scared to not attack, but you know, get in front of people who you may be, you know, intimidated by. You know, after being on Shark Tank, I'm not afraid to call these CEOs of these companies or work my way to get in contact with them in any way I can in order to either talk to them about my product, ask them for advice and things like that. So you really just got to be a little more open in in your uh, approach to uh, who you're trying to go after. Yeah. And if you've been grilled by Mark Cuban, everyone else seems kind of like child's play, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah. But I guess a lot of the thing is just being comfortable putting yourself out there and showing yourself to the world too, right? Yeah, I mean, we're not we're not camera people, you know, we're not television people, you know, a personality that, you know, we're it, it's suited for that, but you know, in my episode you can see my fright a little bit as I first walk down the corridor because they it throws so many things that tell you not what to, you know, what not to do and not what to do, but um, there's a ton of cameras that are out there, so but you know, like I said, once you get in there, that all disappears, and you're literally just staring at down at these people and having a conversation with them about your business. So, and I think there's an entertainment value where they try to scare you into looking scared as you're walking in. Please, don't look at this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but another point I wanted to bring was that in terms of your numbers on the show, like if you didn't get funding, you guys were kind of in good shape too, right? Was that if you get on air? Yeah, I mean, you can't. No company that's on the show can afford that sort of advertising, you know, in prime time network channel. It is, but you know, but you got to be able to take the risk to capitalize on that because, like I said earlier, we don't know when you're going to air until long after you already had made the decisions on how you're going to capitalize on it. So for us, you know, we didn't know we were going to 100% be aired, even though we filmed, but we spend a ton of money and invested in product to be able to have it ready in case we were on air. We want to be able to ship the items as fastly as possible to our customers because, you know, we don't want to have to tell them, oh, you're going to have to wait, you know, six to 10 weeks for the product. So you got to take that, you know, calculated risk a little bit and decide if that's what you want to do. But, you know, you always hope obviously to get the funding to help ease that concern. But for in our situation with us not getting it, luckily for us, we made the right decision and invested where we needed to. But, uh, you know, it's it's calculated risk you have to take. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. And so my last question, uh, what was one thing you wish you knew when you were starting out? Jeez, I don't know. Um, I wish I knew I was going to be running a business about cupcakes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what were you going to do after college? Like, how did you, what were you going to do before you got into this whole thing? I have a, a second business. I have a graphic design degree and I have a design, sign, and advertising business on uh, that now it seems to be on the side, but um, I'm just happy that I've been able to take my skills as you know, learning the the software and my previous positions that have allowed me to develop these products. But I don't know. I haven't really thought about what I wish I would have known before getting into it. But um, you know, I, I can't I can't complain at all. I mean, I'm happy for everything that's been happening, obviously, and I'm just grateful that I've been able to put myself in a position where. Like I said before, I can grow as a business owner and hopefully help others out, give any advice I can. And since I've kind of been through it a little bit. All right. And so where can we find you on the internet? Uh, website is www.thesmartbaker.com. All right. And so for anyone listening, go check out the website. If you need baking goods, that's where you should go. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Daniel. I think that's all I have. So it's been very fun hearing your story on Shark Tank. For the opportunity and <laughs> reaching out. All right. Thanks so much, Daniel. You have a good day. Bye-bye. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.